Hello, this is Rob Woods and welcome to the first episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas and inspiration for how to raise more money and make a bigger difference. And in this first episode, I wonder if you've ever done your best to get better at your job and got frustrated when all that effort didn't pay off. Or indeed, if you got disappointed that if you're really honest, when it came down to it, you didn't manage to follow through on your good intentions to work harder in that area. Well, in this, our first episode, I'm going to explore one particular tactic that I've been using for nearly 20 years when I want to get better at a fundraising skill. It's a crucial element of all the fundraising courses and programs we've been providing to charities for over a decade, and I call it searching for the bright spots. I've decided to call this the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast because in more than 19 years in fundraising, during that time that I've made some progress in in my own skills and then subsequently my ability to help other people learn and improve their fundraising results through our courses and our programs and our coaching, through all of that time, probably the key strategy that has helped me is this thing I called searching for the bright spots. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it comes from a fabulous book, which I highly recommend, called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. And this is a book all about how to help yourself or others change when change is hard. And there are a load of great ideas and tactics in that book. But one in particular, there's a chapter about if you're really stuck and you believe that it's not just just not possible, to solve a particular thing or get better at a particular thing, search for the, for the bright spot, which means, is there any time when you yourself get some success in this area? Or if, if not you, when someone else not dissimilar to you actually gets a different and better result? Find that time, focus on it and ask yourself, what could I learn from that particular bright spot? And as obvious as that seems, very often it gives you ideas for actually how to solve your own current problem. So for example, a couple of years ago, I was coaching someone and their major challenge was time management. They were having many, many problems uh, getting their work done and getting home on time. And it was causing a a lot, lot of problems for them. And deep down, they believed that this was just part of their identity. I am a rubbish time manager. And a question I asked them was, Maybe many days, that is your experience, but is there any time on which you do manage to organise yourself in a better way, to prioritise, to say no to some distractions and get the key jobs done? And initially she was certain that there were no such examples, but with a little little thought she came up with a bright spot which was actually most days, I'm pretty rubbish at this, but the one time I think I'm, I do manage to do that focusing and that prioritising is the day before my holiday. And I, I don't know if this is your experience as well, but on the day before your holiday, is it true that you are more successful at just deciding the two or three most important tasks that must get done and you're more firm and clear in that thought process at the beginning of the day and across the day, you're more assertive in saying no to other tasks or other people that might distract you from that. And if that is your experience, like hers, then the good news about focusing on this bright spot is it helps your brain admit to the truth that you're not 
always a bad time manager. It's not your identity. The managing of time or the prioritizing or the refusal to get distracted is just a skill like any other. And if you can do it on one day but not another, it then becomes possible to dare to believe that you could apply those same behaviours, those same tactics that worked the day before the holiday, on the other days of the week. And that's what I did with that particular client I was coaching. And from the bright spot, we worked out two or three things she was able to do, that, she, but which she had just not been doing up to that point. So one of the ways you can use this tactic of searching for the bright spot is if there's something you're not very good at and you feel it's fairly hopeless, you would like to get better at it, but deep down you feel this is just not a thing you are good at, then if you search for the bright spot, that means ask yourself, is there a time when you may not be great at it, but are there any times when I do it a bit better? Uh, sometimes doing this process is easier with a friend or a coach or a mentor because they can see things that you can't and they can help you believe that this this search is worth the effort. But in that moment, when you search for and admit to yourself, well, actually, I didn't do too badly on that kind of an occasion. And then you ask yourself, well, what, did, what, what happened there? What were the two or three things going on there that caused that result to be a little better? The tactic does help you find those two or three tactics or conditions that you can apply to your current situation that will help you get better results. But crucially, the more important and powerful reason why the technique helps is because it helps you believe that all is not lost. It helps you believe there is some potential, even for you, to do well at this area, which until now you had convinced yourself was hopeless. So that's one way of using it. The other way is in any given skill or industry to search for someone out there who's not just doing a bit better than the rest, but a lot better and asking yourself, what could I learn from that person? And you know, 19 years ago, when I started as a fundraiser, initially my results weren't hopeless, but they weren't nearly as good as I wanted them to be. And I started to realize that it was because I was just using my own common sense for how to uh, talk to a donor or write a proposal or whatever, either my own common sense or you know, the established wisdom of those around me. And what I've found is that in any given market, uh, a sales market or certainly in, in fundraising, uh, whilst one would expect for there to just be an even distribution, i.e. some people are not getting great results and it's a bit mediocre, some people are getting good results, some amazing people are getting excellent results and so on, and one would think that that's the end of the story. Actually, when you look at it, the top two or three percent are not getting five percent more income than the excellent people they're just ahead of. In practice what you find is there's a few people and indeed a few charities in any given market who are not just a bit better for them to be in quote gold medal place, they're, they're raising potentially two or three times as much as those next best people, those in silver medal position, who they themselves are pretty excellent. And what I have found interesting is that if as a source for, of inspiration and ideas, we just look at the, the good or excellent people, then that's the maximum results we ourselves can possibly hope to achieve. Whereas if you, you look and are determined to find the people in fundraising who are getting freakishly good results consistently, then 
you start to realize a your, your belief of what is possible starts to expand and secondly in terms of tactics you find they are doing things different to what everybody else is doing and I made a career out of finding such people uh, getting really curious and fascinated by what they do and how they do it uh, understanding that and then finding ways of bringing those things to life those tactics to life in the coaching and the training and the programs that I do over the last 10 12 years I've had the privilege of interviewing dozens and dozens of what I would call bright spots people who uh, whose results are at a completely different level to the hard-working majority one example that springs to mind is Lucy Sargent I think she's at WWF now but when she was at Marie Curie and she was heading up high-value fundraising at that UK charity income went up from 1 million per year or thereabouts to 3.5 million raised per year in just a four-year period and there's a bunch of ways she did that but in particular uh, the changes she made and the standards they all worked to were driven by the, the notion of treating trusts much more like major donors than most charities do. Uh, or at a different kind of fundraising, uh, Lucy Squance at Alzheimer's Re Research UK, who again I've had the privilege of interviewing several times and uh, again just recently and uh, we're going to bring you that interview later on in this podcast series. Um, she's director of supporter-led fundraising at Alzheimer's Research UK and just to give you a, a sense of this uh, during a three-year period the income brought in by that team has gone up by 350% that's more than five million pounds growth in what they raise in any given year uh, top line there's some amazing tactics and strategies there but in particular so much of her, her growth she puts down to how hard she and her colleagues work on creating a fabulous energized fun inspiring culture actually that then enables her fundraisers to go out and be so excellent uh, and indeed Richard Turner from a smaller charity uh, if you know my work you might have seen my blogs about some of uh, his work when he was at SolarAid and that small charity was its approach was very different and still is and uh, they've achieved such success that for instance they've pretty much achieved their mission in the whole of Tanzania their mission being to, to rid that country of this really dangerous and expensive kerosene light kerosene lamp and um, the tactics Richard and his colleagues have used at SolarAid are so very different and bold compared to what almost all charities do that it has led to this completely different level of result. Uh, I could give you another dozen examples, but across the last decade, I've sought out what I would call bright spots. And so much of the power of a bright spot is not only to find out the tactics to nudge us out of the paradigm we're currently in, and therefore the, the potential results that we could possibly uh, countenance achieving, but also to help us believe that actually far greater success for our mission is possible. And it's also worth saying I appreciate that sometimes it doesn't initially feel very good if our fundraising is not going very well to hear about someone whose fundraising is, go is going amazingly. That can actually be quite annoying sometimes. Uh, I appreciate that 
my intention in sharing any of these bright spots, those ones I mentioned just now, and across all of my courses and across this podcast, I share them not to impress you for its own sake or to make you feel bad, but to impress upon you and your, I guess, your subconscious self that it is worth plugging away, doing your best, believing, following through on certain good tactics which you you honestly logically feel will help it is worth following through on those because if success at a high level is possible for, for them why shouldn't it also come to me and one of the first lessons i learned from bright spots who i encountered uh, was when i was at a children's charity early in my career and i noticed that there were one or two people in that large children's charity who were raising far more money than the rest of us and it clearly wasn't luck because they were doing it consistently. And when I looked more closely and I talked to them and I listened to them speak and I, I asked them to try and put into words where they, where they felt this success was coming from, the key conclusion I came to was that the way they talked to donors and supporters was slightly different to the way most of us did. And that, you know, if you've done any of my courses, you'll know that distinction is that they included more real examples, not exactly stories every time, but more real examples and sometimes stories in the way they spoke than the other normal fundraisers did. Um, and I decided to, this was something I wanted to get better at because not many of my supporters ever said, look Rob, can you tell me a story? My supporters never said that, but they did say questions along the lines of uh, what difference would a gift make or why should I give to, to your charity? And the first couple of really successful major donor fundraisers I spoke to helped me see that if I was including more real examples in the way I spoke, it, that was one good way to answer the question, does it make a difference or why should I give to you? I end, actually ended up going out and learning from a different bright spot outside of fundraising at that time. And there's an adult education college called City Lit in London, where I lived at the time. And I enrolled uh, in evening classes um, in storytelling and had a professional storyteller called Ariella, who had been telling stories professionally for uh, at least a couple of decades. And uh, every Thursday evening, uh, I would go along. It wasn't a fundraising course, you know, there was lots of drama students there and a children's entertainer or two, but we would all go along on a Thursday evening and we would tell stories and this bright spot in terms of storytelling skill, this master who got great results, she would listen to our stories and she would uh, give us feedback and coaching and then after that coaching we'd tell the story again and guess what? The story was tended to be much more interesting and persuasive and impactful to the audience compared to, to before the Bright Spot gave us this advice. And what I used to do then is take the ideas that she taught me back into my fundraising job the next day and uh, use it to help me better understand communication and what I was saying and writing to my supporters. And it really started to help. And that's one of the reasons um, why gradually I felt I had some ideas to share with initially my colleagues and then in due course um, the sector more widely when I set up my company Brightspot was this um, understanding of what is more interesting 
and uh, concrete and persuasive. And how you do that is to search for more real examples and some tips on how you can share those examples and stories in the way you talk to supporters. And one reason I'm so excited about this podcast is whereas for a lot of my career to date, I've had the privilege of interviewing these fabulous fundraising stars like Lucy Squance, and I've benefited from their story and then I've tried to understand it and then pass on those ideas to the people who come on my courses. The reason I love this podcast is I'm in most weeks of the podcast, I'm going to take out the middleman, uh, as in my interpretation of it, and I'm going to interview these bright spots, these really successful fundraisers, so that you can hear the beliefs and tactics and strategies directly from them, the way they articulate them, rather than rely on me to interpret them and reteach them the way I do in many of my courses. So another way of looking at this whole topic is to think of the idea of modeling. And if we believe that consistent success leaves clues, and if I see someone who's getting great results, rather than trying to work it all out myself, if I find out what they do, and model those behaviors or beliefs or tactics, then I have found this tactic of modeling to be a better and faster way of making in progress in an area where I want to grow than other tactics I would do. Now, I do other tactics as well. I go on courses, I read books, uh, networking, get a coach or a mentor, all of these other things that people talk about, I think are really important, especially if they incorporate elements of modeling within them. But if you're listening to this and you would like to grow your confidence and your skills and your results in your fundraising job now and in your career, then I'm suggesting that latching onto the concept of modeling in your approach to achieving that pr progress cannot really be ignored. So why is modeling such a powerful tactic? Well, the best way I can explain it is by looking at a model that uh, learning and development professionals uh, have developed and sometimes used for explaining how you make progress in any given field. And uh, there are four ideas in this model, basically this professional development loop. The, these four ideas go round and round. So um, the first one, if you picture a clock face, the first key word would be potential, as in how much of my true potential am I currently tapping? The next one at three o'clock was action. What actions am I taking and crucially how much action? How much do I follow through and execute? The third one at about six o'clock on the clock face is results. What results am I getting? And the last one is confidence or certainty. How confident am I in my ability and my organization's ability to affect change and get wonderful results? Now the reason lots of people's efforts to get better at something don't quite work out as they really wanted, in my view, is because they don't have enough certainty or confidence that doing things differently than how they had been doing, or confidence that studying, reading a particular book, or confidence that changing their approach to designing a pitch, they don't have enough confidence that doing that brave, energy-taking thing will pay them back. And because of that, I believe they don't follow through and tap enough of their potential and therefore they don't take as much action with as high a standards as they possibly could because at, at some level they don't quite believe it's worth taking that risk and therefore the results they get are mediocre 
or merely quite good. And if ever you go to a conference or read a blog, and if largely what it gives you is advice or opinion on what you should do, um, and it seems sensible, but then the following week you're kind of wondering why you didn't quite manage to follow through and apply that reasonable advice. My view is as to why that happened and, and you only got okay results rather than great results is because most of the approach to helping you get better at it was at the level of what should I do rather than this one I mentioned last which was certainty that it will pay me back or confidence that wonderful results are possible. And this is one of the many reasons why for years and years, if I'm trying to help someone make progress wherever possible, I give them examples, bright spots. I, I show them what story to model and that helps them at some level believe that it's worth truly, truly stretching and, and digging deeper. And then they do start to tap more of their potential. When they take action, they really go for it. They go the extra mile. They work harder to find those better stories. They work harder at truly listening rather than, oh, I did my best yet again. And because all of their, their standards go up in each of these areas, because they believe it will pay them back, then their results go up. And then that feeds back into their certainty and confidence that it's worth striving in this way and then you get this virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle because confidence and certainty is go, goes up so the other three elements can't help but go up in line with your new certainty and confidence. So as we develop this podcast and we share a new episode each week uh, we've got some really exciting people going to be sharing their success, their ideas, their advice and their strategies. Uh, Andy King uh, has a really interesting approach to event fundraising and how it, if you really treat it like a relationship fundraiser, how it can make a wonderful difference to your long-term individual giving results. Alex Wooding, if you've never heard her speak, she's an amazing corporate fundraiser. And uh, in the session we're going to share with you on this podcast, one of the examples she's got is, is how she looked at an existing corporate partner that had been raising a pretty amazing amount, half a million per year, but she wasn't satisfied. And uh, within a year, that support went from half a million to eight times greater, four million per year. If you work for a small organization and that sounds overwhelming, crucially, Alex has a gift of helping you apply those same principles, whatever size of charity you've got. And so just referring to back to that, professional development loop I mentioned before. In all of these examples, I love the strategies and tactics. And when I interview them, I'm really curious as to exactly what they did differently to others, because in most cases, there are things that they do differently. And that truly is part of the mix of how you can lift your results, find the uncommon sense, not do the common sense that everyone around you has been doing. But uh, in case I didn't make it sufficiently clear in this podcast so far, all along, I'm also including the, the, the story, not just for the strategy, but also to help you believe that success and growth is possible if we're willing to work a little harder in certain areas. So if you want to do something practical with the ideas we've been looking at today, here are four options for things you could do. Firstly, I really recommend the book called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. 
Life is full of change and this is one of the best books I've ever read on how to help yourself and others make positive changes successfully. Next, seek out people you'd like to model. Is there someone you know who gets great results in a particular area that you really admire, not only for their results, but also for the way they go about it? For this to be useful, they don't need to be getting astonishing world-famous results, just results which are clearly better than your current level. Could you invite them for coffee or just a chat on the phone to ask them how they do it? Obviously, if that first chat goes well, you could even ask if they're willing to mentor you. But my advice is it's usually best to ask that after you've managed to get the first chat and it's gone well. Thirdly, if you don't know anyone at all who you think you could learn from, then decide on someone famous who you really admire. It doesn't matter whether it's Tanny Gray Thompson or Bob Geldof or Michelle Obama or whoever your hero is, or indeed an inspiring fundraiser who blogs or podcasts regularly. Obviously, I do think podcasts and blogs are incredibly useful, but if you already read or listen to them regularly, then I really recommend you try reading either a, a good biography or an autobiography, because there's a real power in immersing yourself deeper in someone else's world. And over time, I've found this can really help you to take on the mindset and beliefs of that person, if you think that that will serve you. And lastly, if you want to improve your fundraising results and you're in a kind of a role where you sometimes talk to supporters or donors or corporates or trusts or trustees, then a key tactic which sounds simple but is astonishingly powerful in practice is get yourself a notebook, what I would call a, a story bank, and use that from now on as a place where you will always capture any examples or stories to do with your cause, to do with your beneficiaries, to do with the difference your charity makes. Get such a notebook and have it in your bag wherever you go. And when you hear any examples or stories, find the three or four minutes to write those up. And as silly as this sounds, the act of doing that, and I know dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've done it, the act of capturing those rather than forgetting them means that whenever you are in front of a donor, you will have more firepower with which to calmly give them a sense of the amazing impact your charity makes. Just one example, there's a wonderful fundraiser called Becky, who I first met about five years ago when she was at uh, the Heart of Kent Hospice. And I taught her team there um, many tactics to do with real examples and stories in fundraising and how you can capture them and bring them to life for supporters. And when I last met her a couple of years ago, she'd moved on. Uh, to a stroke association and a couple of years ago she said that she has taught those concepts to all of her team her new team and they've all got story capturing books and uh, when I last spoke to her um, she said the results for her team on her patch in that 14 months since she joined was 210% up on what it had been previously and I'm I'm sure there must be a lot of reasons for that growth but Becky said to me she felt a lot of the reason for the growth was everybody having so many more real examples and stories at their fingertips with which to inspire their supporters. So there are four ideas for practical things you can try fairly easily. And if you want more information on anything I've covered, do check out the show notes on our website. If you're curious about any of the in-house training courses, the one-to-one -one coaching or the mastery programs we offer, 
Then again, all of that information is on brightspotfundraising.co.uk. I hope in this episode I've provided not only some interesting ideas you could apply to anything you want to get better at, but also that I've got you a little bit curious about some of the fascinating interviews we've got coming up in this series. So if you want to make sure you don't miss out on those, please do subscribe to the podcast today. I really look forward to talking to you next time. Until then, best of luck with your fundraising.